Hipparchia was a Cynic philosopher who lived during the Hellenistic period of ancient Greece. She was born around 346 BCE in Moronia, a village in northeastern Greece in the region Thrace, and had an aristocratic upbringing. Hipparchia is one of cynicism's earliest practitioners and the only known Cynic philosopher to have been a woman. Ancient cynicism was an ethical system partly influenced by the teachings of Socrates and one of his pupils, Antisthenes, and it had a direct influence on Stoicism. The Cynics believed that the pursuit of a moral and ultimately happy life required that one's way of life be in line with nature. Accordingly, they rejected the artificial construct seen in both ancient and contemporary societies, which above all included materialism, wealth, as well as traditional social relations and the social norms and cultural conventions that they inform. Unlike how the word cynic is understood today, the ancient cynics, though ruthlessly satirical and often skeptical and critical of human motivation, ultimately believed humans to be inherently good and were largely concerned with human freedom and happiness. The majority of the writings and works of the first Cynic philosophers have not survived, and within this history, less remains of Hipparchia. This is partly because, in its historical context, Cynicism was not a philosophical school in the traditional sense, but was highly unorthodox with respect to both its doctrine and practice. In this way, Cynicism was not accorded the same rigor or serious attention in the history of Western philosophy. In contrast to other philosophical disciplines at the time, which centered on theory and introspection, a major goal of cynicism was to live their notion of a virtuous life by way of example. For instance, in living extremely ascetic lives, they aimed to demonstrate to others that wealth was unnecessary and posed a significant obstacle for the pursuit of true freedom and happiness. What we know about the cynics today is mostly found in anecdotes told by their contemporaries or later ancient authors, the vast majority of whom are men. Notably, Hipparchia is the only woman to have received her own chapter in a book by 3rd century AD biographer Diogenes Laertius called Lives and Opinions of Eminent Philosophers. This indicates that she had an important and well-deserved place in the history of cynicism and philosophy more generally. What little we know about Hipparchia is primarily found in this book, though Laertius writes that on top of the stories he has recorded, quote, Countless others are told of the female philosopher." End quote. Given the time gap, Laertius's account is not completely reliable, but he nonetheless had access to primary sources, and as a biographer, his account is less visibly biased than others. Despite the possibility that Laertius's accounts are not entirely accurate, there is plenty to be taken away from both the way he depicts Hipparchia's life and philosophical practice, and the meanings behind these stories within the context of the ancient world. Digging deeper into Hipparchia's influence on the philosophy of cynicism and its implications for political and feminist thought can begin with exploring the ways in which she embodied and practiced philosophy. I will begin with Laertes' account of the circumstances that led to her lifelong partnership with fellow cynic Crates of Thebes. When Hipparchia was a child, her and her family moved to Athens, where she discovered the teachings of Crates, who at the time was her brother's teacher. Eventually, Hipparchia, quote, fell in love with both the discourses and the life of Crates, end quote, and was so adamant about marrying him, she threatened to end her own life if she was refused permission to do so. Hipparchia's parents implored Crates to convince Hipparchia otherwise, for she was entirely uninterested in her wealthy and high-born suitors. After trying to reason with her, as a last 
resort, Crates is said to have placed his staff and small bag of belongings on the floor, stripped naked, and declared to Hipparchia, quote, This is the bridegroom, and here are his possessions. Make your choice accordingly, for you will be no helpmeet of mine unless you share my pursuits, end quote. Undismayed by this display, Hipparchia replied that she had already contemplated this prospect, and accordingly she chose Crates and renounced her aristocratic life so that she could pursue the mentally and physically taxing life of virtuous self-imposed austerity. Accordingly, she rejected any superfluous items not needed for survival, sported the same cloak and staff as Crates, and lived an exclusively public life alongside him since the cynics owned no property and lived outside. The couple were reported to have lived a long and happy life together and had two children who they raised in the cynic life. The story of their marriage begins with Hipparchia's persistent pursuit of Crates. Learchus writes that her attention was fixated upon him, but instead of writing that Hipparchia merely fell in love with Crates, he carefully points out that she was drawn to and in love with the philosophy and the way of life that Crates taught and embodied. On top of showing her agency as a woman, the anecdotes of Hipparchia's life show her dedication and embodiment of the fundamental principles and virtues of cynicism. This is important to flag, given that for the most part, Hipparchia is written into the history of ancient cynicism as the mere wife of Crates, as opposed to someone who made real contributions to the school and the history of philosophy more broadly. These anecdotes demonstrate her embrace of anadia or bodily shamelessness, parisia or of speaking truth to power, and more broadly her rejection and critique of nomos or socially constructed behavioral norms and customs, as well as her rejection of materialism and established institutions. Evidently, we cannot fully grasp the extent to which Hipparchia disrupted convention unless we historically contextualize her life. Hipparchia lived during the early Hellenistic period, which exhibited some improvement in the freedoms accorded to aristocratic women. Nonetheless, the general social, political, and cultural position of women in society did not drastically change. Lack of education, high mortality rates, and infanticide of girls remained dominant trends, and women remained subjected to the patriarchal rule of their husbands or fathers as heads of household. Most aristocratic women were married off quite young, and who they married was up to their parents. There remained a normative divide between the private and public realms legally, spatially, and culturally, which was made on the basis of class and gender. Female presence was excluded from public life in two ways. First, in their status as partial citizens lacking political rights and entitlements, and second, in their spatial relegation to the oikos, or household. Once married, women were expected to take on the role of bearing and raising children and dedicate themselves to domestic duties such as weaving, and within the home, women lived in the upstairs quarters to block them off from outside distractions. Considering this, Hipparchia's disobedience to her parents by proposing to and marrying Crates was an extreme subversion of patriarchal norms of the time. Given that cultural norms and inheritance laws made marriage into an arrangement premised on social status and financial assurances, it is more astonishing that Hipparchia decided to marry for love. The most subversive aspect of their relationship, however, was the equal nature of their work as practicing cynic philosophers. This is significant since in ancient Greece, the division of labor that ensued after traditional marriage was, and in ways continues to be, a major source of women's oppression, both within these marriage relations 
relations and broader social and civic relations. Not only did the union of Hipparchia and Crates unsettle the meaning of marriage within the dominant conventions of ancient Greece, but also within the Cynic tradition itself. Their marriage was the only one recorded in the history of ancient Cynics. As a social institution premised on the materialistic motives they deeply opposed, traditional marriage was in blatant opposition to ancient Cynic values. Moreover, Cynics opposed the traditional social roles arising from married life, believing that for a relationship to be conducive to freedom and virtue, those entering the relationship must be equally self-sufficient and remain free to live in accordance with their philosophical values. Likewise, Stoic philosopher Epictetus argued that the cynic lifestyle is incompatible with ordinary marriage for it strips individuals from their public duties and autonomy from social contracts and constraints. Epictetus acknowledges that there are exceptions to this rule, given the example set by Hipparchia and Crates. Because their marriage was based in Eros, and since Hipparchia was, quote, a Crates herself, end quote, their marriage was not conducive to fulfilling the social roles brought on by conventional marriage. Hipparchia was first and foremost a practicing philosopher. Her and Crates merely shared this life. Hipparchia was said to have attended dinners, banquets, and symposia with Crates, which we can imagine was incredibly controversial, given that historically only men participated in symposia as intellectual equals. One story speaks of an encounter where Theodorus the Atheist challenged her attendance at a symposium held by King Lysimachus. Hipparchia responded saying, quote, Any action which would not be called wrong if done by Theodorus would not be called wrong if done by Hipparchia. After making her point, she humorously added, quote, Now Theodorus does no wrong when he strikes himself. Therefore, neither does Hipparchia do wrong when she strikes Theodorus, end quote. Theodorus was dumbfounded by the sophism, and having nothing to say in response, he attempted to lift up her cloak with the intention to expose her body. But Hipparchia, quote, showed no sign of alarm nor of the perturbation natural in a woman, end quote, pointing to her embrace of the virtue of shamelessness. Theodorus then attempts to dismiss Hipparchia's argumentative skill by quoting a line from Euripides' play, Bacchae, asking, isn't she the woman who abandoned her traditional role in the loom in pursuit of an improper vocation? To this accusation, Hipparchia affirms that it is her, but proceeds to ask Theodorus, quote, do you suppose that I have been ill-advised about myself if instead of wasting further time upon the loom, I spend it in education, end quote? Like traditional marriage and its corresponding social relations, the cynics rejected citizenship and the traditional life of the polis. This was demonstrated through a provocative practice in the context of Hellenistic Greece called parisia, or speaking truth to power, which encourages an openness of discourse regardless of the conventions that decide who is allowed to participate in the polis. Seeing that the cynics were quite infamous for involving others in upsetting conversations, the encounter between Hipparchia and Theodorus is somewhat unsurprising. In the context of gender, however, it was unusual for a woman to be seen publicly challenging a man with a rather contentious sophism. 
To appreciate the significance of Hipparchia's public speech and engagement in philosophical debate, we must consider how the meaning of public discourse is informed by patriarchal gender relations and the spatial and legal separation of the private and public spheres. As Mary Beard argues, masculinity has shaped the normative meaning of public speaking in deep, rooted, and largely unconscious ways. On the one hand, the expectations underlying public speaking imbues the voices of men with undeserved authority, while on the other hand, they function to normalize the silencing and devaluation of women's contributions, particularly within those topics that are already coded as male pursuits, such as politics and philosophy. What is notable in this interaction is that Theodorus is rendered silent when he is unable to match Parkia's argumentative prowess with an adequate reply. Moreover, the passage Theodorus attempted to use against Parkia has a loaded undertone, since he was referencing a common trope in Greek myth of the chaos and death that befall the world and humankind when women reject their domestic duties. From our vantage point, it seems absurd to attempt to frame Hipparchia as immoral for refusing to fill the domestic role expected of her. In doing so, however, Theodorus attempts to trivialize Hipparchia's speech by repositioning her and her identity into the private, feminized sphere of the oikos, thereby attempting to reprivatize her. But Hipparchia resisted this privatization once and has no qualms about doing so again, and offers an entirely rational reply. She wonders what Theodorus finds so mistaken about her enlightened decision to leave weaving behind in order to pursue an education and study philosophy. For they evidently both agree that the latter is a more valuable pursuit. Parisia, for cynics, is connected to the virtue of shamelessness, since the cynic commitment to speaking boldly, fearlessly, and authentically implies speaking the truth to topics that were off-limits at the time, irrespective of whether it appeased those around them. Hipparchia's syllogism is provocative, since it implies that there is no rational reason Hipparchia should not be doing the same things as Theodorus, regardless of gender. Hipparchia speaks lowly of domestic work, specifically that of weaving, which makes me wonder what kind of meaning she imparts to women's work by extension. Hipparchia rejects weaving not only for its materialistic superfluousness, but for the way in which women have been traditionally identified with the loom. There is no natural place for women in the loom, since the natural place for both women and men alike are outside of these conventions, and consequently, there is no natural, hence rational, justification of this gender division of labor. Hipparchia carves out a conceptual space, similar to Catherine Macaulay, to interrogate the traditional education of women in domestic work as the source of what prevents women from practicing a virtuous life in philosophy as opposed to some natural disposition. Fundamental to the cynic critique of convention was rejecting the strict demarcation and constitution of the private and public realms. The cynics embodied their belief of living in line with natural human disposition, refusing to be embarrassed or ashamed by their natural instincts in light of some artificial social convention. All that was considered inappropriate acts to perform in public, for instance, eating, bathing, urination, and defecation, the cynics performed publicly in their everyday lives. 
This became known as the Embrace and Cultivation of Human Shamelessness, or Anadea. Hipparchia embodies this core cynic value, for instance, in her unperturbed response to Crates' nudity. According to the account by 2nd century AD philosopher Apuleius, Hipparchia and Crates consummated their marriage in public in the middle of the day. This is consistent with reports by Sextus Empiricus, who writes that they often had sex in the Agora and other public spaces. This has become a point of debate, given the euphemistic language we find in Laertes' writings. Nonetheless, these counts are consistent with the Cynic doctrine. We need only consider the dual manner in which aristocratic women at the time were excluded from public life to appreciate how controversial this must have been. Unrestrained by conventions of modesty, shame, or embarrassment, Hipparchia demonstrates her freedom and bodily agency in an extreme way, possibly hindering serious consideration of the meaning behind these public acts of sex in this ancient context. From the vantage point of the cynic, we must see these acts as intrinsically connected to Hipparchia's philosophical practice, since they ultimately aim to demonstrate virtue while simultaneously troubling the conventions of public life. From a broader perspective, Hipparchia's particular acts of anadia could be interpreted as feminist praxis. As Madeleine de Scudery tells us in reference to the ancient Greek poet Arena, conventional modesty has historically been a virtue associated with women. This has had a particularly oppressive impact since this false modesty works to uphold the dominant practices of excluding women from both public life and intellectual pursuits, and has been internalized by women to the detriment of their self-esteem, thereby causing them to cast further doubt upon their intellectual capabilities. Though Scudery, as an admirer of polite society, might not agree with the cynic's radical rejection of materialism and conventional manners, Hipparchia's embodied of shamelessness as part and parcel with her intellectual pursuits is undoubtedly a subversive way for a woman to not only ignore but openly challenge female modesty, something that both Hipparchia and Scudery agree to be an empty and ultimately harmful cultural norm. Given these subversive acts, how are we to understand Hipparchia's legacy in the history of feminist political thought? In exploring this question, I would like to first consider an epigram that has been appointed to Hipparchia by Antipater of Sidon in the 2nd century BCE, and was reported to be the inscription on her grave. I, Hipparchia, chose not the tasks of amply robed women, but the manly life of the cynics. Nor do tunics fastened with brooches and thick-soled slippers and the hair call wet with ointment please me, but rather the wallet and its fellow traveller the staff, and the coarse double mantle suited to them, and a bed strewn on the ground. I shall have a greater name than that of Arcadian Atalanta, by so much as wisdom is better than racing over the mountains. In this epigram, Hipparchia is being memorialized as a masculine figure. Similar to Elizabeth I's speech at the Armada, there is a direct juxtaposition between the qualities associated with women, such as beauty and adornment, and the masculinized traits she exhibits, such as ruggedness and philosophical wisdom. Hipparchia appears to accept this masculinization as a way to assert her power. This epigram, therefore, falls into the tradition that masculinizes the voices of powerful women, which Beard argues further disconnects notions of femininity from those of power. 
and reinforces the masculinization of public power. This epigram is reminiscent of Epictetus's notion that Hipparchia was a Crates herself, further revealing some of the fundamental limits in the ways in which powerful women and their actions are understood and portrayed by men throughout history. This subordinates Hipparchia into a role in which her achievements remain tied to her husband's and teacher, thereby moving her away from having an independent identity as a thinker in her own right. This masculinized depiction also positions Hipparchia in opposition to the image of the privatized and publicly silenced domestic woman of her time. And though Hipparchia did radically transgress gender norms, this formulation problematically overlooks the commonalities and solidarities between Hipparchia and other women in her time and throughout history. Still, we can conceptualize Hipparchia as forming a particular feminine identity for herself and by way of example for other women of her time. Exile for the Cynics positions themselves outside of traditional civic boundaries, allowing them to let go of any ties or commitments they may have to a particular place. Diogenes of Sinope moved to Athens after being exiled for the crime of defacing currency with the purpose of exposing the superficiality behind what people value. Crates self-exiled from his aristocratic life in Thebes, not unlike Hipparchia, believing that it was the only way to begin living ethically. The vantage point of exile, from which the cynics critique the conventions of ancient Greek society, resonates with Françoise de Glaffigny's philosophical novel Letters of a Peruvian Woman. In writing from the perspective of the character Zilia, a Peruvian woman taken to France against her will by French colonists, Glaffigny is able to highlight some of the deeply ingrained social and moral problems in French society, exemplified in everyday life, that are often overlooked or taken for granted. Similarly, Hipparchia's chosen marginalized position as a cynic affords a literal detachment from her previous relegation to the oikos in a way that carves out a space for a woman's voice to trouble and begin to deconstruct gendered social relations and the social and cultural norms that they produce and reproduce. Hipparchia's decision to marry for love as opposed to social and financial gains allows her to reject patriarchal conventions and in some ways the private identity they imposed on women in ancient Greek society. For example, though Theodora still sees her feminine identity as tied to the oikos, Hipparchia nonetheless creates an alternative identity for herself in history as a woman cynic philosopher and as an intellectual equal alongside her husband Crates, living her life entirely in the public realm where she accessed male-exclusive activities and philosophical debate. This is similar to how Zilia's rejection of conventional marriage prevents her from gaining the identity of French citizen in order to create an independent identity for herself informed by her Peruvian indigeneity. Unlike Zilia, however, Hipparchia's political identity remains inextricable from the gendered conventions of ancient Greece. Though the cynics could not participate in the polis because they were propertyless exiles, Hipparchia was excluded a priori for being born a woman. The cynic life allowed Hipparchia to break many of the conventions of gender but it did not secure her significant political power. As Beard demonstrates, the fact that the public realm of politics has historically excluded women in the Western world can be traced back to the Greek polis, which was premised on the political participation of property-owning men to the exclusion of all others. 
contempt towards women's public speaking and argumentation, as exemplified by Theodorus, remains deeply embedded in our cultural consciousness, in both our interactions at the micro-conversational and macro-institutional levels. Moreover, given that women's oppression is so deeply entrenched in our society, mere inclusion into the public realm is insufficient for addressing the root causes of oppression against women, which is largely found in the gendered social relations and the social and cultural expectations that they give rise to. As Beard writes, quote, You cannot easily fit women into a structure that is already coded as male. You have to change the structure, end quote. This requires a critical understanding of our contemporary notions of power, along with the larger aim of reconceptualizing it. I believe that the ancient cynics offered a critical take on the conceptions of power of their time by way of rejecting both the institutions and marks of power. In rejecting materialism, the cynics disseminated their philosophy freely and openly, and in rejecting social constructions, they believed that all people have an equal aptitude for virtue. Cynicism was unconventional in that its doctrine explicitly encouraged the participation of women. Antisthenes, the founder of the Cynic doctrine, was purported to believe that, quote, virtue is the same for women as for men, end quote. Cynics attempted to harness their own forms of power by practicing the virtue of paresia and offering this as a method of engagement in civic and public domains for those who likewise do not have political agency within the existing power structures. In being premised on a politics of praxis, the cynics saw to demonstrate the importance of radical actions based in subverting problematic but largely uncontested conventions and norms. And like feminist theory, cynicism desired to challenge and disrupt hegemonic discourses and norms while also being concerned with the role the body plays in this process. So to sum up, being doubly marginalized on the basis of both the unconventional and radical philosophical discipline she pursued and being a woman practicing what was and still is generally considered a male pursuit, that is philosophy, Hipparchia has not been accorded adequate recognition in history. Hipparchia demonstrates the ways in which female embodiment in the public sphere can be understood as an ethical stance of political resistance, since she simultaneously offered an alternative way of being and living as a woman premised on the rejection of social convention. For instance, despite the fact that Hipparchia's marriage and her behavior as a wife was far from the norm, her marriage to Crates is still acknowledged in the works of their contemporaries and later ancient authors as a proper marriage, suggesting that their marriage forced a reconsideration and reformulation of what marriage consists in, not only within the Cynic's doctrine as we see in Epictetus, but also within the dominant Greek society. Since the Cynics embodied their beliefs, their marriage offered a lived example of what a virtuous romantic relationship could look like and presented one premised on an embrace of love and equal choice and on the rejection of materialism and of women's unchosen relegation to the private sphere of the oikos. Moreover, though Hipparchia's philosophical practices may not have translated into tangible political power, she nevertheless contested the private-public binary as well as notions of what spaces a woman's body can occupy. Finally, in practicing Parisia, Hipparchia demonstrated that there is virtue in being one of those voices that speaks truth to power publicly, 
despite one's systemic exclusion from civic and political life.